I'm Claire. And I'm Craig. And welcome to Retaining the Passion. Journeys through nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or the guests do not necessarily represent the organisations they work for or are studying at. Or any trade unions or professional organisations they are members of. Thanks for listening. everybody welcome to the next episode of retaining the passion and we're going to talk today about imposter syndrome yes we are Um, yeah and I think we've probably mentioned imposter syndrome a couple of times on the podcast oh yeah absolutely Um, and it's something that we've definitely talked about I think we talked about it as students as well as since we've been working haven't we like together yeah absolutely I think it's I think it's something that nearly every nurse or student nurse or anyone in life really at some point you do feel that imposter syndrome that you don't feel like you belong in a certain role or in a certain place in your personal life it's it's that feeling of not feeling fully equipped or skilled enough and it's that waiting to be found out that someone's going to look at you and be like you are ridiculous please leave as Bridget Jones says yeah absolutely (laughs) and it's like that scary thing that you think is only your secret as well yeah and then and then you like I remember you saying something about having imposter syndrome whilst you were chair of the students committee or something and thinking no way he seems really confident and then I think as you get to know people or you you have those conversations you realize we all have that we all have that self-deprecation that questioning whether you're doing the best and I think you know in the roles that we do as nurses we are like we've said everybody needs a nurse right so we're we touch every aspect of every person's life so then that level of responsibility and feeling of responsibility that is the right word of kind yeah, of how you much there's the huge, huge amount of accountability like at the end of the day yeah. our, jo- our job is so important and we've mentioned in previous episodes you've got your NMC pen and that plays on people's minds like the decisions you make are going to have an impact on patients but on the profession as a whole on you personally yeah. professionally and it can be very overwhelming and people really do dwell on that and yeah, you and I have discussed it. I do come across outwardly very confident. I don't know if that's my acting past. You just sort of improvise and hope for the best. But there's definitely times where I've been in situations where I have felt like an absolute imposter. Like even from doing this podcast, I've been invited to talk at certain things. And I'm like, yeah. why am I here? Like I was really grateful earlier on in the year that the Florence Nightingale Foundation asked me to come in and talk about leadership as an early career nurse and I emailed Gemma and I was like are you sure you want me to do this and she was like yeah but me personally I was like I'm no more special than anyone else that I don't feel like I fill this space and I I feel like that's a human characteristic as well self-doubt for us to have but yeah it's certainly impacted me where I've either decided not to go for things or I have stepped down from things so yeah it's it's and something that you know plays what, on me what as well it's that thought of sometimes you don't talk about it because it feels like if you do you're fishing for people to tell you you're great yeah so it can be really hard to say I'm really struggling with this or I I feel out of my depth or I don't know that I'm good at my job because then the immediate reaction is for everybody to turn around and be like no no you're amazing you're great oh I can't believe you're saying that and that that isn't gonna take you know see that's why I don't talk about it very often because if I ever have spoken about stuff people then say I can't believe that's you you yeah and then I feel like I don't want people to think I'm saying something just to be told you know and it it ties in with so many things I think we've talked again before I'm always accused of being like relentlessly positive (laughs) but I am a positive person Uh, you know I do try and even when I have my down moments or things are tough go okay gather yourself together and move forward it's just that's my personality but 
I I worry endlessly about upsetting people or getting things wrong or not doing enough for my patients. And that feeds into imposter syndrome for me. Absolutely. And I think that another flip side of that imposter syndrome is a lot of people get really anxious about it and hold on to it. And I guess sometimes people are scared to articulate it in case through that articulation, that is the moment where someone's like, what you feel like this oh actually you are an imposter what are you doing yeah. like so there's that fear that you will expose yourself and and maybe prove people right which I'm sure in 90% of the cases that will never not be yeah. the case but you still have that self-doubt of if For I articulate sure. this is someone actually going to highlight that yes I don't know what I'm doing so yeah but then as nurses, so we've got that duty of candor so for sure. And I'm really glad we've done this episode straight after the clinical supervision one that we most recently did because they tie so well together, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. But yeah, absolutely. it just feels like the two are so closely linked and so important. So we have two fabulous guests on, Claire. Do you want to let people know who we're going to be hearing from? Yeah. So we've had two amazing interviews. Our second interview is with Emma Wady, who we wanted to speak to for ages. And we had an incredible conversation with her. I was probably a little bit too fangirl, um, but I won't <laughs> apologise for it because Emma is amazing. She um, is. So we spoke to Emma and that's about moving forwards, I suppose, from imposter syndrome, her interview. But first, unfortunately, Craig couldn't make it, but I spoke to my very good friend, colleague, and reason why we did this episode, Danny Dunn. So sit back and listen to Danny's story. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague and friend, Danica Dunn. Danica is a mental health nurse working in an A&E liaison team in Greater Manchester. Good afternoon. Hi. It's amazing that we're both off work. That's quite a revelation. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Really um, amazing. <laughs> so we start every interview by asking people what their journey was into nursing until this point. Only share what you want to share with people that are listening. Okay, so. I started in the NHS when I was 17 in admin and yeah fine but was not what I really wanted to do it was a job not a career and then I unfortunately lost my granddad from cancer and during that time I realized that I would I liked that nursing and I liked feeling like I could help someone so I did an access course and decided on mental health nursing I stayed working in on an acute ward for just under two years and then I've gone over to a mental health liaison team because that was my five-year plan but I got to it a lot earlier <laughs> <laughs> and and I love the team so I'm, I'm, I'm nice there and I'm happy yeah. and settled it is it's yeah so the reason we're doing this episode is because of Danny it's something that Craig and I talk about a lot but she sent me a message saying you've got to do an episode on imposter syndrome, dot, dot, dot. I've got it. I've just realised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what I think of her afterwards so she can be <laughs> embarrassed because she's not an imposter at all. But tell us what you think imposter syndrome is, Danny. So to me, imposter syndrome is feeling like a fraud, having that anxiety that I'm not good enough for the job that I'm in, that someone's going to find out and that I will lose the job that I'm in. I get really uncomfortable with any kind of praise at all in personal and professional life. So getting that from staff and patients around me is just very strange to me. It actually makes me more anxious, and I just feel like I'm constantly striving for something that is not achievable by me. I look around me, everyone's amazing at their job, and I'm not as good as anyone here. Why am I here? <laughs> I mean, this is all lies, being somebody who works <laughs> with Danny. She's amazing at what she does. So do you think you felt that as a student when you were sort of doing your Absolutely. nursing training? And how did that Absolutely. How did that work? Because I guess a lot of being a student nurse and being a qualified nurse is about reflecting, isn't it? So how did that how yeah. did you manage that with your reflections? So I think especially in the first year, my reflections were very superficial. I think I was able to do the reflections that were needed by university. But in reality, I think I, I just kind of, well, I've got through that and carry on with, with the next part of my course. And it wasn't until the end of year two, 
I was facing a very difficult 10-week placement um, on a very difficult unit and I was totally overwhelmed and wanted to run away on the second day hated it (laughs) and one of the band sixes took me to one side and, and basically said you can be really good at this I can see that you can be really good at this and what what's stopping you is your own self-belief your own confidence in your abilities you will get out of this placement what you put in and that was the best placement I ever had I went out of that constructive thing to do because the temptation is just to tell everyone they're great right like kind of oh you've been really good why do you feel like that you're really good and actually that doesn't help someone to move forward well I guess what she did is say okay this is your challenge this is the thing you're not really good at and this is what you need to work on which gives you a focus then doesn't it rather than oh you're really great I think it made me realize it made me realize as well that the only thing holding me back was me and my own belief that I, I shouldn't be there and that I wasn't cut out for this and I wasn't good enough to be a nurse and I couldn't believe I'd got to the end of year two in a nursing degree and it completely changed my attitude and the reflection that I, I, I did after that was that I needed to go forward trying to get out of things every every experience as much as possible so that I could learn and then I could continue striving towards that perfection that I felt that I needed and that's what I carried on trying to do do you think that gave you more confidence towards the end of your degree then absolutely yeah yeah yeah. definitely definitely and I suppose how do you align because you know I get involved in loads of things and loads of people you know and I do I work in DMHT and then I come and do bank shifts Mm -hmm. you guys in A&E and people do say to me are you really good and and I never really believe any of that. I'm the same. I, I just that you, outwardly. yeah, but you are. <laughs> you are. But outwardly, yeah. I think I've got like this uber confidence, yeah, um, that I don't have. Um, yeah. And I suppose, how do you manage that? You know, there comes a time where you want to apply for another job, or you want to put your name in the ring for an opportunity, oh. and people sort of say well, you do do that, but how yeah, but can you do I, that if you're yeah. not confident? So how do you make yourself do that? I have not applied for a job in two and a half years. I look at jobs, but I can't bring myself to do it because I don't think I'm good enough for other jobs. And where I am now, by fluke, I feel like they felt sorry for me in the interview. And gave me the job. Yeah, she's amazing, um, everybody. Because she's talking about that assessing. No, I, I genuinely, I think that was a fluke because it was after, straight after I'd finished the night shift, and I, you know, I just I tried to respond to ward alarms uh, for the ward that I work on halfway through the interview, and I think they genuinely gave <laughs> me because it felt so open and wanted me to get off the ward. <laughs> and I, I just. <sighs> I can, it's very difficult to to describe, but my anxiety is around uncertainty. So unless I know that I'm gonna gonna go into go in that interview and rock it and get that job, I'm just not gonna put myself through it because I've got so much to learn. After two and a half years of being in this job, every day I walk in and I have no idea what I'm doing and don't know how I will react to any situations. So. While I, I still feel like I'm, I'm still in the first stages of a new job every single day. I so, guess that is that continued professional development and learning, isn't it? You know, we... Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's really every important, but that can make you feel, that can make you feel like you don't know anything. And I suppose... Oh, yeah. The role yeah. that you do and that I do can be quite lonely in that respect. So we, yeah. for those who don't know how liaison works we sometimes assess in pairs but quite often we assess individually and so you see somebody and anybody can walk through the door of A&E in mental health crisis and invariably you see things and you you don't recognize them or you don't or they tell you about a diagnosis that they've got or a medication they're taking and you're not certain and I think that 
does. I'm the queen. I'm the queen of Googling things when I'm <laughs> away from the patient and also ringing the office and asking as many people as I possibly can. What but you see, I think see I that as be a doing. strength in you because you, yeah, you yeah, research think, it, you learn it. Yeah. And your, your knowledge is immense. Thank you. It's not, but thank yeah. you. <laughs> because when I, I have... um, when I was um, talking to people in A&E about my own personal health issues, Danny sat me down <laughs> and went, right, this is serious. Here is the evidence paper on it. This is what I know about this liver disorder. This is what I know about epilepsy tablets. Stop being an ostrich. Get your head out of here. Because your knowledge is unbelievable about physical health you know all of those kind of things so I guess it's that whole imposter syndrome thing on a on a bigger scale of applying to jobs but how do you Mm. approach that Mm. because certainly that is not something you give off to patients or students that come into the team yeah you manage that on like a day-to-day basis I I fake it Honestly, I really do. I have tried to, I've had therapy, I've had CBT therapy about my anxieties and it, and it basically came down to imposter syndrome. And I do what I've always done and acted as though I know what I'm doing, acted with confidence. It's that thing of Beyonce having Sasha Fierce when she goes out on stage and being a completely different person. You know, as you know, I used to, Beyonce in theatres and on stage and I do that at work I am a completely different person in different situations so I've learned to adapt and have an outward perception of confidence when inside I am panicking I'm on anxiety medication and I go home and, and I cry and think I just I can't wait till the day I just can open a coffee shop and not have to do this anymore because I can't do this And then I get up the next day and I go out and do the same thing and absolutely love my job and then come home and go, okay, I can't wait for the day where I can just switch (laughs) off and not have to act like this again. You know, it is that thing. And that's sad because you are a really good nurse. And I think that makes me sad that you feel it to that (laughs) level. No, it does because, you know, you've taught me a lot in that role. And, you know, if we do assess together, I love assessing with you because I always learn something. I always have a different way of doing something or a different approach or and I think one of the really nice things about liaison is that opportunity to have professional discussion that you don't always get mm. oh other, yeah yeah and so I think that yeah. opportunity for learning is there so but what like when you-, you when you started when you started in our, our team doing shifts I was very intimidated by you <laughs> I'm very intimidated by your knowledge because I have none for me <laughs> you have you do but that was your confidence you came yeah, in and I you had that, that outward too. confidence yeah I and I, I think that in this and talking about this with colleagues and stuff you find that a lot of us have it a lot of us are does that make there, you feel just, better knowing that other yeah people I think it does same. yeah and and I think we can all learn from each other on how best to cope with it but also make it a positive thing you know it and try and and use it to our advantage yeah I think yeah and maybe think about colleagues a little bit more I guess in terms of mm. we've got that two-sided feeling about the role like you love being a nurse you and oh, I had God. that conversation yeah. about how proud we are to be nurses yeah so proud and you know we have a joke in the team sometimes don't we because we've got a lot of social workers that work with us about kind of you know but we're nurses yeah. and that's we're proud yeah, of we're nurses. <laughs> <clears throat> so you've got that same side of it that absolute passion and love for the career that you've chosen but also oh, that yeah. fear that that you're not good enough and maybe it's about if mm. we recognize that in each other you know, we all say congratulations to other or well done, or that was really good, or you handled that difficult situation well. Maybe we're not so good yeah. at saying you rocked an ordinary, not that there is an ordinary day, but, you know, you rocked that ordinary day or you just did yeah. that thing that, that you do every day, but you did it really well. And maybe that's what yeah. we need to take from it is that celebrating normality and that actually that's yeah. where you get yeah. those roots then, isn't it, in confidence to think, well, I can do the... Because... 
I suppose that's the weird thing about me. I know I'm really good in crisis. That's where I don't have imposter syndrome. If something major happens, because I stop thinking. I stop yeah. thinking and I stop questioning myself and I just do it. And then afterwards, you can look back and go, no, I never managed to do that. I couldn't, you know, if you put it yeah. on. But actually, yeah. in the moment, I'm not doubting myself. It's when it's every day or, you know, and I start to question myself and second guess yeah. myself and then go away and overanalyze everything I've said to everybody. Yeah. How can I get through this? And then when you do, you think, how did I get through that? Can I do that again? But like you say, in a crisis, which we do see a lot, you just get through it and you know what to do in that moment. And then you go home and you go, wow, I can't believe that was me that got And I could that. never do it again. <laughs> I could never do that again. I don't know how, I don't know what came over me. Yeah. So I guess we have to find a way forward, don't we? And I think yeah. our last episode, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, it was on clinical supervision. And I do think clinical mm-hmm. supervision plays a yes. big part in this, whether that's formal or informal yeah. in talking to each other and, and yeah. moving things forward. And hopefully finding programmes where... Um, programs of study or programs of development where people can share those experiences and know they're not alone um oh yeah I think I think that's what really needs to happen yeah because whilst you're sat there quietly thinking you're a fraud the person next to you could also be feeling exactly the same way and until you open up and share those thoughts you can feel so lonely so lonely and so out of place and has that made you feel I don't know how many people you've shared it with. Obviously, I know you sent me the mm. message and we've talked about it a little bit and then talked about it today. Do you think that makes it better that people in the team know that that's how you feel? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. You know, at Christmas, we went out on a Christmas do and that was it was work people. But I actually left early in tears because I didn't feel like I belonged with those people. And they're people that I've worked with for you know a a good few years now yeah some of them I've worked with on the ward and listeners I I wasn't invited because I'm not I don't belong I'm just bank (laughs) oh stop it there was other bank staff there weren't we no I wasn't invited (laughs) um well you missed out because you didn't miss out because I left very early and I I very quietly just left um, and went home very upset because they're amazing people they're an amazing team they are so knowledgeable and and just brilliant and it's so easy to just not feel like you belong there like they're just uh, a league above you they you know if that makes sense yeah it does make I I understand it but I also know it's not true because you're one of that (laughs) one of those incredible people so what are you going to do to continue to try and address this? I think it is that that thing of learning that my anxieties are around uncertainty and my own lack of self-belief and try and use it to my advantage, continue to try to use it to my advantage. I won't be happy unless something's done perfectly. So prove to myself that I can do it to the best of my ability. Keep learning every single day from the people around me and trying not to make that make me feel like I don't know what I'm talking about because there are so many amazing people around me learn from everyone and just keep going forward and just try and continue to be the best person I can be as a nurse for my patients you know the fact that I do get compliments from people that I see in A&E is amazing and I need to learn to take those compliments as they're intended rather than because we're seeing people in some of their darkest hours absolutely yeah you know compliments are not fast flowing at that time and that's no no they're really really not that's not that's not the focus so the fact that you get any is incredible amazing incredible you are an amazing nurse and it, you know it makes me sad that you think that because I think the other thing that I recognize in in you is that you're always also trying to help everybody else grow and develop and you don't expect 
perfection from everyone else you have high standards as a nurse you expect people to be professional Mm. but Mm. you are there to help people when they're struggling and so you're not you don't say well I'm not helping you because you're not perfect and we should all be these little perfect (laughs) nurses that's not what you're saying no no and so no no. it's kind of what you expect are expecting of yourself and it's about maybe judging yourself on the same scale I I think that's the thing like my colleagues I know aren't perfect but in my head they're much more perfect than I could possibly be so when they're trying to when they're when they're learning when they don't know something when they're struggling I'm there for them so that they can can learn and grow and continue to be the the amazing people that they are it kind of never impacts on how what I think of myself yeah it's like two different lanes isn't it yeah two completely different lanes Yeah, yeah 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 definitely well thank you for your honesty because I know a lot of listeners will share that and if people are struggling then let's start a conversation even if it's on Twitter yeah. or however it is but we ask every person before they go to give a top mm-hmm. tip to our listeners so what's your top tip it can be about anything it doesn't have to be about this it can be you know a recipe if you want or about nursing whatever <laughs> you like um I have started picking just one thing out of the day that has made me smile. And I think that getting in bed at night and thinking of that one thing has really helped me um, to finish my day positively. So last night it was the fact that my cats, as I said goodnight, one of them meowed back to me as if she was saying goodnight to me. And that was what made my day feel much better. (laughs) So... I think just try and think of those little positive things, even if it's that you've made yourself a, a nice cup of tea at some point during the day. Just really savour those things, especially at the moment whilst the world has gone to pot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just, I sat outside. Just think of the little things. Listen to the birds and had a cup of tea this morning and it was ace. Yeah, it's just, yes, yeah. Yeah. Life's too short. Life's yeah. too short. Thank you very much. Thank you. So Claire and I are overwhelmed, delighted to be joined by Emma Wady, who we have wanted on the podcast for so long. And Emma is the Deputy Director of Mental Health Nursing for NHS England and Improvement, and also a consultant nurse for psychiatric liaison. So has a field in both worlds of nursing. So we're delighted to have you, Emma. Thank you, Craig and Claire. It's lovely to have the opportunity to speak with you. I'm so excited because Emma's also one of the loveliest people in nursing. (laughs) My children wouldn't agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we start every interview, Emma, by just asking you a little bit about your journey into nursing and how you've got to this amazing role that you're in now. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit of that with our listeners, that would be fabulous. Yeah, really happy to. Um, And just to say two things, really. One is I never wanted to be a nurse. So I didn't grow up wanting to be a nurse, aspiring to a nurse. I didn't know any nurses and certainly didn't expect ever to be in the role that I'm in now, which is terrifying, but also a huge privilege. So I come from a very normal working class background. Parents um, left school without any exams. There wasn't really any expectation that I would necessarily do anything particularly the expectation that I'd work but not necessarily particularly a career but I had all my childhood wanted to join the Royal Navy actually at a time because I'm very old when women (laughs) couldn't actually serve at sea but I was determined that I would be the first woman to serve at sea so I obviously had ideas of grandeur from a very young age but also just very belligerent and wanting to prove everyone wrong and I guess that's the thing that's always stood me in good stead along the way really is that kind of stubborn belligerence obstinacy determination probably so I pursued a, a career in the Navy and actually when I was about I think about 12 13 nurse and um, women could go to sea so I remember saying to everyone see I told you by the time I'd get there <laughs> however on my 16th birthday my parents took me to sign up to join the Navy it was the 90s, so of course I went in 70s fashion, which was back in <laughs> thinking that I was looking the part and sailor bell bombs. To get a bit of a shock when they turned me down, I did have GCSEs. They weren't they weren't great. They were pretty middle of the road, but they were kind of good enough. I'm one of these people that probably coasts, does enough to get by, likes to be comfortable. 
but they felt that actually I should be considering doing my A-levels, which had never crossed my mind. And so that's what I did. I went off to do A-levels, but I had a, a couple of weeks to decide what A-levels to do. Picked the completely wrong ones. So I picked all the sciences, which I wasn't good enough at, to be honest, to do an A-level in, which I probably shouldn't say as a nurse when we need to be really strong. Uh, this, this sounds very familiar because I did. <laughs> I retook my A-levels because I did biology, chemistry and something. In fact, I remember getting 13% in one of my A-level chemistry exams. I feel quite a lot better now, So, uh, yeah. And also <laughs> you've just described mine. yourself as old and we've already established that I'm older than you. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Had to endear yourself and win friends and influence. <laughs> So I did A-levels, but I chose the A-levels I was interested in, which is sociology, 16th century history and geography, which is ironic because I'm permanently lost. <laughs> um, but so didn't really have a career of aspiration and then decided that I was going to join the military police. So I obviously like uniforms. That probably is the only synergy with nursing. <laughs> and actually did, did get into to be a, I was going to be sponsored to do a, a scholarship with the army through university and I say no one in my family had ever gone to university it never really crossed my mind so it was all a bit last minute all a bit by the the skin of your teeth but unfortunately during my A-levels or fortunately whichever way you want to look at it is um I was very very ill not with what I expected because when I went to the GP finally I had a young person on board and of course not that I'm advocating this as a route into nursing at all but it really was I needed to have a career change in the direction of travel very quickly because I had another person to consider. And so I needed a career, really, which one I would enjoy, which would be secure, would be stable. But also fundamentally, and I guess this is the, one of the controversial elements, is that it supported you to do your training to have a career that would be stable and secure. And so I needed a bursary to help pay for childcare. So and it had to have a uniform, as we've established. And I needed a uniform, although, of course, in mental health, we never wore a uniform. So that was it. I obviously didn't do my homework. So I watched. I was watching Casualty, and I do some talks for schools, and I talk about this and say that I'm not advocating this a career choice. It's more about sometimes the best laid plans get waylaid, and you have to adapt. And probably that is something I'm very good at, is adapting, being flexible. Yeah, really keen to try new things and um, would just kind of follow my heart and let the head work out later. But while I was, I had my son and I had a, a year off basically to have my son and I tried out lots of different careers. So in the sense that I went and um, when I was pregnant, I listened to, I worked in a school for free volunteering, listening to children read to see if I could be a teacher. I can't. Um, I'd worked in a shop to see if that was right. I can't do that. I, I did it, but it wasn't for me. And then a friend said, why didn't I go and work in a nursing home, which all of my friends thought was hilarious because I'd never really shown a compassionate bone in my body or had aspirations. But I worked in a home for people with dementia. It wasn't called that at the time. And it was, I felt like I'd come home, which sounds a bit bizarre, but I no. felt like I'd found my place. Yeah. Yep. And um, it was a surprise t- to me as much as anybody else, because it wasn't something I'd aspired to. I didn't know anyone in that role. But as soon as I was there, I knew that was where I wanted to be. And applied to do my nurse training in the July and say so was able to because it did offer a bursary at the time. It offered security and, and I was able to do that. And, and obviously look after my son, which is, of course, vitally important. <laughs> so that's how I came into nursing, which isn't the normal route at all. But I, I always say that nursing found me rather than yeah. necessarily the other way around. And then mental health nursing, even more so because initially I was going to be a, a general nurse. But my first placement was actually in a, a mental health ward. I did Project 2000, which I know is heavily derided. But actually, it gave someone like me the opportunity to try different types of nursing that I wouldn't have had any exposure to otherwise. And actually, again, as soon as I was on that mental health ward, it felt like a calling and it, and it always has done. And that, you know, this is 26 years ago now. And I feel as passionate today going into work and working alongside my colleagues and working with people as I did on that very first day that this is where I want to be and I can't imagine doing anything else, really. So I know that's a bit of a rambling story of how I came into nursing, but that is genuinely how I came into mental health nursing. There wasn't a plan, didn't intend to be where I am now. I just always wanted to do my best. And that's really and am I right? Me. You've always, always held a clinical role throughout yeah, your journey. I've always maintained clinical practice. So it doesn't matter where I've worked. And I've had probably a 
Well, I have had a very varied and interesting career, actually, because I've always been really keen to learn. I love learning, really nosy, always happy to take a risk, try something new. And I've been able to really capitalise on opportunities that I've seen arising because I've been willing to take that risk. I've worked across all mental health settings. I don't think there's a mental health setting that I haven't worked in, at least partly. So I've worked across the prison service, I've worked in high secure, I've worked in community, I've trained as an accredited CBT psychotherapist and DVT, um, continued that lifelong learning really, I've worked in substance misuse, I've worked in children and people, now work in acute, so I've, I've worked across the lifespan and in most settings and whatever job I've done, um, and I only ever wanted to be a CPN to retire because when I qualified, you retired as a CPN and I thought that was when you'd arrived. But I actually qualified as a CPN. So I was the first ever, I think, in England that was a newly qualified CPN back 25 years ago. And and then I really didn't know what to do then. And then I wanted to be a nurse consultant. So all I ever wanted to be was a nurse consultant. They'd just been established, I think, around 2000. Might have been a bit before that, actually. But certainly when I was fairly newly qualified, and that's all I ever aspired to be was a nurse consultant, which is the best job in the world. And um, yeah, so I've worked all across always maintain clinical practice so that's looked like working in prison supporting prisons in segregation units that are in acute distress from going out in the ambulance when I was a chief nurse for an ambulance trust supporting those in mental health distress and picking people up off the floor so it, it has varied the clinical practice throughout but I have always worked at least one day a week clinically and that continues and of course over Christmas like everyone else I also vaccinated vaccinated in my local community centres but also when I'm vaccinated um, mental health staff and mental health patients on the wards over Christmas so it's really important to me that clinical practice. And this is why Emma is my nurse hero and who I want to be when I'm a grown-up nurse even though I'm older than her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I always say I became a nurse to be a nurse and I'm really lucky in the position I am to be able to influence and be able to speak hopefully and represent nursing but I wouldn't be able to do that unless I was still nursing and seeing the patients myself because that's what feeds my soul. Yeah, yeah. That's what um, gets me up in the morning. What a journey. I feel like I could just talk to you about your career, but we're, we're here to talk about topics, so we'll we'll move on. But Craig and I have spoken to lots of nurses and, and lots of AHPs, I suppose, and many of them, and earlier in this episode, our, our listeners will have heard an interview with a nurse who really identifies with imposter syndrome. And we both have talked about having imposter syndrome. Why do you think that's so prevalent in nursing? And, and how does that affect culture in the workplace, do you think? It's a really interesting question, actually. And I would be the first to say that I probably always feel like the biggest imposter in them, always feel like, how am I here? How am I deserving of this place? So I think there's something inherent in us, whether that's gender based as well. Um, because I'd, as I've kind of progressed through my career, and I've worked in some really male dominated, very um, aggressive male environments, actually. Um, I wonder if there is a gender element to that. But also there is something around the role of nursing that it still hasn't been able to shake off that role of subservience to other professionals a little bit. I think the way that we're always seeking to please and accommodate others sometimes means that we don't push ourselves forward and put ourselves first. And whether that's borne out by that feeling of not being quite good enough or not feeling valued. And I think there is an issue around value in in our culture, both how we value ourselves, but also how we're valued more generally. And I'm hoping that COVID has adjusted that, that value and that contribution we give. But I think even interprofessionally, there is an element and value and imposter syndrome. And we still hear the debates around should nursing be graduate? Um, I wasn't a graduate nurse. I qualified in its diploma, but I got my degree at the earliest opportunity. And I believe that being a graduate profession is, the, is, is really significant and important around critical thinking and elevating professionalism and nursing in the way that we've advanced practice in the way that we do but I think still we have to really work hard at having that voice around the table Mm. and it suits other people for us to not have a voice sometimes because it means that they're able to push forward their own agendas so I think there's lots of issues at play around that feeling of being an imposter or not feeling quite valued sometimes feeling a bit of imposter is good because it keeps us on our toes you know sometimes I think actually it's really driven me to be the absolute best and to continue learning and to really listen and to really try harder to engage. So I think there's there are some positive elements sometimes to not. I suppose it's it's when it takes over, isn't it? When it becomes yeah. the main thought that it becomes 
a challenge and then affects culture in the workplace yes that's when it's a negative side I think sometimes it's it's having the opportunity to reflect and I know that your previous podcast has looked at clinical supervision which I am a fantastic advocate for and I always sought out clinical supervision and opportunities for reflection and I would say that imposter syndrome and really being able to reflect and be aware of our own feelings and thoughts and how that then is imparted in practice but also how that then affects our practice and the way that we work with colleagues is really important and being able to share that because often it's other people's stuff being transferred onto us Mm. that um that really fuels that imposter syndrome rather necessarily what we put in ourselves it's the contribution of the two together isn't it really yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you've reflected back on the, the clinical supervision discussion because both Joanne and Tony, who we had on as guests, spoke about the Professional Nurse Advocate Programme. So I wondered, Emma, I know you're heavily involved in that. So are you able to tell us a little bit about the Professional Nurse Advocate Programme and how it can work to address some of these issues and create a culture of psychological safety, which allows nurses to be their authentic selves in a way that develops both them but also nursing as a profession yeah so the professional advocate program has been a bit overwhelming actually I think in the last year it's only been in place for the last year and it it really was developed from seeing the role in midwifery so there are professional midwifery advocates and have been since 2017 my own experience in listening to nurses in the field during covid and really thinking about what mattered to them an idea that was born out because I had a little bit of money and I was asked what would I spend on and it's really obvious what the gap was was a professional clinical leadership program that really supported nurses to recognize their own skills and competence but also was valued and recognized by others and I think it comes back to what I was just saying earlier that often imposter syndrome is a, is a two-way street it's imposed on us and we kind of soak it up sometimes as well so initially, it was a very small idea and a pilot for critical care. And it's, I cannot quite believe myself how it's grown and grown into the huge social movement that it has. And I can only say that that is, in, that is due entirely to all of those nurses who really took a leap of faith to, to come onto the programme. And at its core, it is about equipping nurses to have confidence and competence in their own voices, their own skills, not only to recognise the impact of work on themselves, but also the impact, the positive impact that they can have on others by supporting them, but also thinking around innovation and quality improvement. So although a key element of it focuses on the delivery of restorative clinical supervision, which we know is is based on Proctor's model of nursing supervision and is is the only model of clinical supervision that's been evidence-based to both improve morale, but also improve patient experience and patient outcomes, which is obviously why we're all here in nursing. The most important elements was the wraparound elements that it brings in terms of elevating and giving confidence to the nursing voice around innovating in practice, about being part of solutions, not just part of problems. And that's been really, really critical to success. I mean, there are lots of other unintended, well, actually I intended them, I'm I'm lying. I I couldn't pretend, but I knew. I knew that CPD systemically has been undermined and not invested in. I'm probably going to have a P45 by the time this comes out (laughs) for many, many years. Um, And I knew that a whole generation of nurses had really lost out in terms of having some of the opportunities that I had many years ago around, if they choose to, having those opportunities around academic qualifications and clinical practice. And a whole generation of nurses have not had that opportunity for a myriad of reasons. And that was having a real impact on us in terms of having enough nurse lecturers, in terms of research, in terms of people having equity of opportunity to progress in the way they wanted to. So I particularly set some caveats. It had to be master's level. It had to incorporate all the elements, as I've mentioned there, around not just supervision, which is vital, but enabling them to have a voice to create the culture around them of learning and development and create a culture of wanting to do better and being valued for it. So the PNA programme has been, it's interesting, isn't it? The things that you think your career would be defined for, it probably wasn't that because it was almost like an aside to the, to the roles that I was doing, but has been absolutely pivotal in giving that voice to nurses in a way that I never, ever imagined. And to be sitting here, it's only started in March 2021. And 
the name the role didn't exist to now know that it's in the NHS contract there is national guidance and we have over 5,000 nurses either trained or about to finish training in it it's it's quite phenomenal really it's quite scary it is unbelievable and I suppose thinking about the success which you know you should be so hugely proud of what do you think the next steps are to enhance that program then within England because at the moment it's with in it's in England isn't it for those I guess that have completed it how does how does that move forwards yeah, so I would always say that this was a plane that we built in midair because I say it was meant. It was an idea that I had 24 hours to pull to fruition. You never really quite knew how it'd land. And then we've worked really hard collectively over the last year to really pull together a really tight infrastructure of sustainability and really embed the role in, in practice and in organisations. And there's several ways of doing that. So one of the ways is policy, which is, is vital, actually, because that kind of enshrines and provides key drivers and we have as I said been able to enshrine that in the NHS contracts the role is in the NHS contract as is a requirement for all NHS organisations to develop an implementation plan for the sustainability of the role of professionals advocates to ensure that one in 20 registered nurses in England are trained and supported as professionals advocates by 2024. We've also made sure that we've got some systemic um, things in place in terms of support so every single professionals advocate once trained six months after, we'll have a booster session. They'll also be linked into local communities of practice as well as profession-specific communities of practice. Every trust has now got to identify a trust lead for the professional advocate programme who reports directly to the chief nurse and provides board reports. We have national reporting on supervision and professional development conversations and quality improvement projects led by nurses for the first time ever that starting in April across all organisations, so we have data. We have regional advisors. We have I've commissioned research that's nurse-led because, again, you have to live by your sword, don't you? And I really advocate for nurse <laughs> research. So any research I commission is nurse-led. And I'm absolutely delighted that we've commissioned some fantastic pieces of literature review, um, an independent evaluation, as well as a separate piece of research around the role of supervisors in delivering restorative clinical supervision, all nurse-led. But actually, what sustains it really, ultimately, is actually those individual nurses, as I say, who took that leap of faith, who wanted, even at the most difficult time, personally and professionally, and when we've been stretched beyond anything we could have imagined, that actually took on board a master's level programme in order not to necessarily support and develop themselves, but actually fundamentally develop others. And that, that social movement is what will sustain this. My role is to support them from a, a national perspective to get funding. I can infiltrate and influence policies, but actually it's the words of those nurses. And I, I cannot ever thank them enough, actually, for stepping forward during that time to take on this role and support their colleagues. And we're starting to see the most amazing feedback. Nurses for the first time going for promotions that they wouldn't have thought possible, applying to be queen nurses. We're now seeing applying for other advanced practice courses, which is what I'd hoped for. But I didn't know that it would happen. And we're really starting to see that shift. So a lot still happening in the space, a lot still to get better, a lot still to do to embed it. But we're on a journey and we're on a journey together actually to get this right. So I really invite feedback and how we can improve it. It is just England only. I've had lots of conversations across the four nations who I know individual nurses are really interested in this programme. And I know that there is a lot of interest because it's the first in the world internationally. So as to say, it's it's overwhelming, it's kind of scary because it's taken on a world of its own. It's not the panacea, it's not going to cure the ills of nursing or the NHS because we know there's much that, that needs to improve. But what it has done is given a voice to nurses and a confidence to them in a way that perhaps they hadn't felt they had for a long time. Sorry, it's that's a bit rambling. Not <laughs> no. at all. It's so incredible to hear this, Emma, and so empowering for the profession of nursing but also for individual nurses and yeah I'm sure there'll be many nurses going into these roles who will be feeling imposter syndrome being out there in these new pioneering roles but hopefully having those advocates and having those walking the walk and talking the talk will help the generations to come in that help to ease that imposter syndrome it was interesting hearing you talk about it from England there and I, I'm certain there won't be much you can share but as a nurse sitting here in Scotland is the feeling you think to be pushed out in other UK nations or is there something similar that you're aware of in Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland that nurses could aim towards so 
certainly we've had really positive conversations across the four nations around the benefits of the programme and how it could easily be transferred to any setting. So the other thing that's really important about this programme is it is across any healthcare setting at the moment. So that does include general practice nurses as well as um, prisons, etc. But there is an appetite for this to extend into social care as well. But obviously it's thinking about the practicalities of that. Funding is also an issue. There may well be programmes similar, but I, I know that this in terms of its the actual PNA, the Air Equip model is the only one in the world. That's so exciting. So well, I would love to see it extended. I know I get contacted by nurses from Scotland, America, the Channel Islands, asking to come on the course all of the time. But I think what's so important and vital is that there is that infrastructure of support around them because actually these nurses sometimes will be hearing stories, experiences from colleagues that they've never had to deal with before. They're yeah. experiencing that in their own self-awareness for the first time. And what I'm really always conscious of is that we don't leave these people unsupported and make um, their endeavours in vain or create more emotional burden. So it's, it's important that infrastructure is around and embedded, actually. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I guess for those of us in England, sorry, Craig. Um, Sorry. How, how we have jobs people... in England, Craig, if you're looking for roles, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'll be getting my P45. <laughs> um, how can people find out about the PNA programmes and how to access them? What do they do if they're thinking, oh, yeah, this is my next step? And I'm going to send a personal message to Danny. This is your next step, Danny, who's, who you've heard the recording of. How do, how do they access that? So actually now, because there's such a growing evidence, well, evidence base is not the quite right word, but such a growing, um, they could just Google it actually, and they will find the operational guidance will come up. We do have our own webpage on the NHS website, which in itself was a massive step forward because there's not many things that get their own webpage on the NHS website. So they can go on the NHS website and Google professionals advocate, and it will take you to a page that includes case studies, films, links to all the regional advisors that we've got but it also links to all the communities of practice or the newsletters and all of the articles that have been written by PNAs themselves I know there's one in the nursing times this week there's been others in the nursing standard we also have commissioned skills for health so there are e-learning modules available very interactive which talk about the role of the professional advocate and the role of the a-equip model so there are e-learning modules that people can access too I've but I would say Google they're it. really good. They're really good. I've oh, done good. Them. I bet say what's the feedback? It's a little bit hot. No, they're good. They're good. <laughs> but yeah, that there is such a growing story about this now. It, it really is amazing to see it on Twitter and things. It's, it's, it makes the back of the, the head the back of my neck stand up. Do they need to secure their own funding or is it trust funded? How does that work? No, so this is nationally funded by the nursing directorate. So what we have always done is we funded this nationally because we needed to pump prime the HEIs to develop the course in the first place. So there are regional advisors. So I would recommend each NHS organisation, and we have um, offered places to the independent sector if they provide NHS commissioned care, but obviously my area of influence is limited mm. to NHS. If they, Every organisation will have a trust lead. Um, on our webpage, we actually have got a list of trust leads, so they should be able to find their trust lead there, or they can contact us and we can give them the details. And they can actually ask for an allocated place. So every trust has been allocated funded PNA training places. Great. They can also be put in contact with PNAs in their place of work because they should start to see their colleagues now training as PNAs. Because I don't think, although I'm sure someone will contact me now, we have any NHS organisation that doesn't have any now. Wow, that's amazing. Emma, you are just so truly inspirational and you're saying that you came up with this whole idea in 24 hours you had the space to start wearing ideas you really missed your calling on dragon's den or the apprentice you would, <laughs> you would be amazing so with that in mind we never let any of our guests go Emma without giving their their top tip it, it doesn't need to be nursing related or to do with the professional nurse advocate or imposter syndrome it can be absolutely anything it can be a small piece of advice or something existential that will change people's worldview so so what is Emma Wadey's top pearls of advice? I suppose just going back to that kind of imposter syndrome element really and just reflecting on that is Never, ever be afraid to share an idea or a good idea. And I suppose I've always been an ideas person. I've done the most weird and wonderful things through my career. And I think people have just kind of 
that I was strange and weird, really. And because you never know which one's going to hit and be that winning idea. And actually, there are so many fantastic innovations that nurses hold. We are, you know, natural problem solvers. So go with your gut, share that idea, believe in it, because if you believe in it, others will follow and believe in you. Oh, I love that. And if people want to have more of Emma Wadey, who could not want more of Emma, where do they find you on social Um, media? I am. I do have a Twitter um, profile, so it's at Nursing Emma, very original, as you can see. <laughs> and I'm re- always really happy for people to email me directly. I like to think I'm very approachable. So I am just emma.wady at nhs.net.com. And I, I can say Emma is really approachable. She, uh, I met her right at the beginning of my nursing yeah. career. Um, that lovely film we did about the role that of lovely Catherine. film yeah and uh and she's been an inspiration to me ever since so thank you emma thank you for joining us it's yeah. been a joy thank you so much and on behalf of the whole nursing profession emma, can i just say a huge thank you for all the work you've done you have been truly pioneering inspirational aspirational nurse and the work you've done with this program is is going to change the face of nursing so thank you thank you oh, thank you so lovely to have had those two interviews and to hear from Emma about how we can move forwards with it, how everybody has imposter syndrome. But I'm really interested, Craig, because I'm really sad you didn't get to chat with Danny. I'm really interested because I know you've listened to it yeah. to hear what you you thought of Danny's story. Oh, I, I was so sorry to have missed it when I listened back, but I think it, it gave me a very different perspective on it. And I'm glad I got to hear it for the first time as our listeners will have, because it, it really made me it made me feel very sad for her because it, it, through what you have said to me about her and through your discussion, it's clear that she is an amazing nurse. And my wish for her is for her to have the same level of compassion for herself that she has for her patients and also for the colleagues that she works with to support and with the student nurses because she sounds like an incredible nurse to go to for help and support when you are not absolutely sure what you're doing in an area and that it would be such a gift for her to have that level of of self-compassion and self-belief but it's so I don't think it's a unique story hearing from Danny and I think there'll be a lot of nurses similar to that and I think it shows that so much of imposter syndrome I think is in nursing as with all walks of life you're going to go from being that novice through to being the expert but then when you're we all sit somewhere on that scale but then when you're in an expert of one area you'll then be invited to other things or move to somewhere else where you become the novice again and it's like you said in your interview with Danny Claire we as nurses as a profession it's all about continuing professional development roles are always developing teams are always developing and you're never going to know everything but it's having that realization of the transferable skills that you have and really that self-belief in what you have to bring and it it sort of links into what Emma was saying when I was thinking about all imposter syndrome as a whole I think a lot of it probably does have to come with the the gendered nature of nursing and the subservient sort of role to in to the patriarchal medics that nurses constantly historically have felt like they are not the experts in a field that that they are the assistants if if you were for lack of yeah. a, a better terminology so you are constantly people pleasing and nurses are always there to care for others and perhaps there isn't that level of self-care that is needed it, to to deal with imposter syndrome yeah and I found myself thinking about it both after Danny's interview and after speaking to Emma and after you and I've spoken. It's so complicated as well, isn't it? Imposter syndrome, because it's not, I think I shouldn't be at this job, therefore I'm not going to do it. You know, Danny mentioned and Emma said similar things where we're still doing the job and we we are still able to identify stuff we're good at. You know, Mm. Danny was able to acknowledge that in a crisis she gets on and she does things and she's great and she can be assertive within the team you know I've got the joy of working with her and 
so it's not as straightforward as oh, I'm not very good at my job and that's how that's how I exist it's that complexity of I am proud I'm you know they're both both Emma and Danny so proud of being nurses yeah so they've got that pride but both of them even Emma at her level is saying you know yeah I get imposter syndrome when I'm in these meetings and think of the job that I'm in and all of that side of it and I think what's great that we were able to do in this episode and to talk with Emma was about looking at the new program in England and I'm you know I'm really hopeful that it's going to come elsewhere that will give people that structure and that vehicle to take that pride and hopefully connect that like exactly like you said to that self-care that care routine that treating yourself with the same respect and generosity of spirit that you do with everybody else and I think that's what I hope people get when they listen to this episode absolutely get listening to Danny's story and thinking I can identify with this and we know so many nurses that can identify with it maybe all nurses can identify with it but actually then okay so we need to change this this is a culture shift that needs to happen so let's get one in 20 of these nurses on it and let's get people in other areas of the UK saying standing up and shouting saying we want it so that we've got that vehicle to move things forwards because it's only going to benefit the profession. Yeah absolutely and I think and it was interesting because Emma sort of alluded to this that having a little bit of imposter syndrome a sort of if you look as a parallel to acting, that little bit of stage fright when you go into an area is not always necessarily a bad thing because it does keep you on your toes. It keeps you forward thinking. It it encourages innovation. It encourages creative problem solving. So having a little bit is not necessarily a bad thing, but taking or having the protected time through something like clinical supervision or even making time for peer-to-peer support conversations, to have that time to be really reflective and reflexive about a situation, to realise what you actually do well. Obviously, we should always acknowledge things that we can improve on. And as we both said, nursing is all about continual professional development. And I think the day that anyone thinks they've nothing left to learn is the day they should probably leave nursing. We always should continue to grow, obviously. But I think having that real, true reflection of actually, you know what, and you said it in Danny's interview, it's not about acknowledging the amazing things that you've done, that you've really stepped out. It's acknowledging the the little day-to-day things that you get right. And rather than just being like, oh yeah, that's just my job. Yes, it's just your job, but you have done this right and you have done this well and you should have confidence and pride in that. And those little building blocks, I think, will help people build in that confidence it's all about having that self-confidence that self-belief and self-worth and I think the more the profession is valued externally as well as by nurses internally themselves that will help to boost and hopefully lessen but I I don't think completely eradicating imposter syndrome is the end goal because I do think like I certainly know if if there are times, like I said at the very, very start when I was invited to that Florence Nightingale Foundation conversation, it really did put me on my toes. But at the end of it, I was like, do you know what? I did have a lot to impart and share. And I am, like I said, again at the start, I'm no better than anyone else. So anyone could have stepped into that as an early career nurse. And I think they would have left that meeting and felt great about themselves in that moment too. And it's having that type, pushing yourself out your comfort zone and realising that you can do it. Yeah, and having a safe space to do that, and that's really important. And I think ultimately it is about, the title of this podcast is about retaining the passion, and and we want that to continue. So that's what I hope people take away from it as well, is think about that, think about why you came into nursing, think about the pride in nursing, and don't let the imposter syndrome or the self-doubt creep in and become bigger than all of that because that's when we lose people. So for me, it's it's striking that balance, like you say, maybe not getting rid of it because it keeps you on the edge, keeps you on your toes. But yeah, retain the passion. Let's let's keep thinking about doing that. And that's why we have these conversations with people. Absolutely. And if anyone listening is struggling with imposter syndrome, because we know that that can link into 
absenteeism, presenteeism, to people having real issues subsequently with mental health and job performance and stress into their personal life, know that there are people that you can reach out to and speak to. And most importantly, take care of yourself because you do such incredible jobs and you are so important. Yeah, take care and we'll see you next time. Lots of love. Bye. Thanks for listening. To make sure you stay up to date with our latest episodes, please subscribe to Retaining the Passion. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. So find us on your usual podcast provider. Oh, and please feel free to leave us a rating and review. Because this is your podcast and we'd love to hear what you think and what you'd like us to talk about and who you'd like us to talk to. You can follow us on all the social media channels. We're at PodRTP on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you're on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash RTP. You can also visit our website at podrtp.com for all our episodes and other information. You can follow Craig on Twitter at CraigDavidson85 and me, Claire, at Manners of Marple. See you next time. Bye. Bye. All music on this podcast is courtesy of Kevin McLeod.